Hello and welcome to another episode of How Not To Make A Game. Joining me on this episode is... Well, it's quite a list here. Let's go through. Uh, it, she is a games producer, a woman in games ambassador, a pioneer for Girls Make Games in the UK, a BAFTA crew member, a lecturer on game design and games arts, as well as studying for her own MA in writing, an MCV Women in Games Awards 2019 finalist for Creative Impact, and on the Game Dev Heroes 2019 production shortlist. It's Kiva Roddy. Yay. <laughs> ah, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's such a such a list. <laughs> <laughs> that really is quite a list, yes. Uh obviously, congratulations on both your MCV and Game Dev Heroes nominations and uh making it into BAFTA crew again as well. Yeah, thank you very much. Um it's been it's been a good month, lots of good news. <laughs> yeah, it really has. And we're only what halfway through the year as well. <laughs> Yeah, we got like a summer full of um, award shows, which is nice because this is like uh, the first year that's really happening for me, I guess. Mm. I put a lot put, put a lot of work in, so it's nice. <laughs> <laughs> Are a lot of the award shows going to be based in London? Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm based in Manchester, so it's a bit of a journey. It's probably faster to fly from Belfast to London and cheaper as well. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, that's very very true actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, the train prices in the uh, mainland UK can be particularly bad. <laughs> yeah, like <they're> awful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, looking at your LinkedIn profile and just sort of going through all the different jobs and things you've had. Uh, so since starting in the industry, you've had a number of different roles, including including usability tester, designer, QA assistant, developer, producer, and associate producer. It's fair to say that you have a good idea about everything that goes into making games and probably experience of things that can go wrong too. Yeah. Uh, I only have sort of a vague idea about what a lot of those roles are. So can you explain them a little bit more and the differences between them? Um, so I guess the first main one was usability testing at Team 17. Mm-hmm. Um, that is basically going into Team 17 who were growing as a publisher at, a time, at the time and I was a student um and basically we just go test their games and analyze uh the user experience side of them and give them feedback um so it was all about how how do you feel when you're playing um this thing does using this menu feel natural does it Hmm. um feel feel good to attack someone in this way does it feel good to jump in this way and we'd give them that feedback which as a game design student was really good to see in a studio because yeah. you're sitting there trying to quantify what design is like how do you identify if it's good or not and then there's this local studio to the uni that I was at um, kind of giving uh, giving people the opportunity to really see what that was because designers mm. would also come in and speak to you as well and ask how you were um, how, you, how the experience was for you which was really cool yeah <laughs> and Team 17 being quite a well-known company as well yeah, um, like I think at the time I literally knew them for worms. Yeah. One of the games I got to do usability with was Overcooked, uh, which oh, okay. was cool because it was it was it was quite funny actually because uh, um, a friend of mine was an IGF judge at the time, so we had seen the game about a year before and we knew that it existed because of the IGF judging process. 
but then like going into usability one day and team 17 were like okay this is a big secret you can't tell anyone no one's seen this game yet <laughs> and then overcooked came up and it was me and three guys that i went to uni with and we were like oh it's overcooked <laughs> 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 so it was cool um and it was nice like seeing these games like up and coming i think that um like a lot of gamers would love to see the behind the scenes stuff and i think that mm. um team 17's usability kind of programs probably a really good place to go and see that um and see what game development actually is and if people are interested in it i thought it was a good entry point in for yourself then yeah definitely it looks it looks pretty cool on on my cv and uh, i actually um about a year after i finished university i went and did qa at team 17 for three or four months Mm-hmm. Uh, before I went um, went on as a freelance producer so like I, I knew the company I knew the people in it and I got to know them even better um, when I was QAing there so it was cool. How does the QA testing differ from usability? QA testing is a, a bit more about quality assurance so um, it's not about it can be a little bit how the game feels in terms of like frame rates and stuff like that, but it's more about functionality. Are things working as they were intended? Finding bugs, finding really age case bugs as well. Um, I think that people don't realize um, it's not it's not just playing a game all day for the fun of it. Mm-hmm. You'll often be doing the same thing over and over again. You have to whenever you find a bug, you have to identify how you reproduce that bug so the developers can quickly go in and find it and figure out what the problem is. Mm -hmm. And it's cool because the QA team works quite closely with the dev team. So they would come and ask us um, lots of questions about what was happening, when was it happening, were there any other factors involved, such as uh, how long has the console been on for, how many saves do you have? things like that just so many little things that can cause things to go wrong in games yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> whenever people are talking about the industry and rules within the industry qa can be dismissed a little bit um as both an easy entry point into the industry um but also as an you know a lot of people would say it's an easy job but obviously it's not there's a lot more hard work that goes into it yeah i I can understand why people think it's an entry point because you maybe don't need a technical skill to go into it Mm -hmm. but in terms of how developed some of your soft skills need to be um like communication being like spelling and grammar is ridiculously important because uh like i know this as a producer like you're trying to keep everything as efficient as possible Mm -hmm. if you if you submit a bug and it's impossible to read (laughs) 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 and like devs are asking you to come back to you and actually having to ask like what do you mean and stuff that slows down the whole process like if that kept happening over and over again Mm -hmm. um you can imagine how much developer time's wasted and uh, also, it's quite easy to be a bad QA tester. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> um, like the amount of people that don't really try and test the limits of a game and um, really try and push it and maybe don't... Ha- like, you have to be... It's quite a creative role at times as well in terms of, like... A lot of it is trying to do silly stuff and see if the game breaks. Um, but being creative enough to come up with that silly thing <laughs> um, is a lot of it. And I think that the people that make it to senior level and even management level think of the craziest ways to test a game just to find out if it'll break. Because you never know what the player is going to do once they're in there. Um, so like the experience they have behind them and the crazy ways they find to test a game to try and make sure all bases are covered is kind of insane yeah 
What made you then move uh, from being QA into uh, freelance producing? So I actually started... It, it's it's a little bit of a weird like timeline because my first production experience was straight after I graduated and then I went into QA this, like one year later. Mm-hmm. So uh, I actually was part of a competition called Transfuser and uh, that competition is based in the UK and it's all about graduates um, trying to establish their own company maybe four or five people um, getting together to make a prototype of a game and pitching that for funding Mm -hmm. uh, over a summer Um, so the game's made in a very short period of time and that was really like leaving uni and hitting the ground running because I had no business experience Um, I didn't really understand what a game producer was at the time Uh, I think I was just a bit I was just constantly a bit worried that we weren't going to achieve what we once wanted to. Um, and I was constantly thinking about making sure everyone is where they want to be. Everyone knows what the idea is. And the, uh, one of uh, one of my lectures at the time was like, oh, right, so, so you're a producer, whatever I was telling him what I was doing. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I kind of discovered after doing the job for a while that that was the job I was doing. And I fell into it quite naturally. And we ended up, I ended up building a business plan for our company at the time, which was called Cold Sun Studios and pitched the UK Games Fund for funding. Um, And we ended up getting funding. We were one of the five or six selected teams to come out of the very first Transfuser competition Mm -hmm. that actually got funded, which was great. Absolutely great. And our CVs, great for um, like looking back on it, like we were getting a good bit of contract work, but we were clearly just like cheap because <laughs> 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 we were just graduates and didn't know how to charge properly. I started learning a lot more about production. I got a mentor and everything. Actually, uh, the guy that was the head of my game design course at Futureworks, Ben Hill, um, mentored me uh, for a while because he was producing um, a game called Cube 2. Mm-hmm. And he was kind of... I, I wasn't working on Cube 2, but he was kind of using the development of Cube 2 to show me how production works whenever I was okay. starting out my company, which was really cool. Um, and I was able to bring that back to the whole team. And uh, we were, yeah, like it, we were able to do that for quite a while. But as um, like this is whenever we were trying to make our own prototype, it became very evident we weren't really experienced enough to make our own prototype. We were overscoping every time. We weren't quite nailing the design. So then uh, it became very much about finding contracts and developing as a business. Mm. And we did do that um, for quite a while, but as the contracts came in, a lot of the people that we were working with kind of wanted to control the production themselves, which made me less and less useful. <laughs> so I was getting kind of bored and decided uh, I decided to apply for work and um, I got a job as, as QA at Team 17, which was quite nice because... Uh, Cold Sun Studios we were working remote and there wasn't I had Ben as a mentor but like we didn't really have seniors to turn to or anything we didn't have that safety net so going into Team 17 and actually and which is a growing publisher at the time producing all kinds of indie games um and it's very very production driven as well their production team's um quite big like learning from even just being QA seeing producers work was really interesting and also just as you get to talk to I'm quite good friends with um, some of the people that were producers there at the time. And we still like kind of talk as a little group of producers, (laughs) 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 get sharing advice and stuff, which is really cute. And 
yeah, like so I guess Cold Sun Studios where I started production, I was out I was doing QA um Team Seventeen for a while, but then two things came along at once where Futureworks, which is the university I went to, kinda like approached me and asked me what I lecture there and at the same time Ben Hill was starting some new projects called Thorn mm. and Crescent Bay and asked me to be the assistant producer on them. Yeah. Thorn and Crescent Bay um, were both released as exclusives on the Humble Originals bundle. Yeah, um, they were quite small little little prototypes. Like it mm. was very much um, Ben playing around with some creative ideas that he had had for a while, um, and Humble Bundle kind of gave him the platform to do that. Yeah. Um, again, I was speaking to Gary Kings um, on one of the other episodes. Obviously, he's released two of his games through the Humble Bundle as well, and it does seem to be very geared towards small or smaller experiences that still need an awful lot of work to be put into those. But a long marketing or a traditional marketing campaign obviously wouldn't work for something that is as short as they are, and certainly Crescent Bay and Thorn do seem to fit into that category. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think like you can play through. I think you, you could play through Thorn in like fifteen minutes and Crescent Bay, maybe twenty minutes, mm-hmm. and they didn't take that long to make. We spent about six weeks on Thorn, and um, maybe seven or eight weeks on Crescent Bay. Oh right, okay. Yeah, and yeah, it was uh, pretty mad because like I think we were we were just kind of doing these projects one after the other, but it was a really interesting kind of production challenge because I was like kind of getting people on one project while there was nothing for them to do in the other and swapping them around (laughs) and kind of like kind of whenever the art like things like whenever the art was all finished on Thorn they were moving like right over to Crescent Bay while the artists were kind of working in the game in Thorn our programmer was setting up all the systems for Crescent Bay and then coming back to fix up Thorn Mm -hmm. So it was like really interesting um, as a producer to kind of ex- experience that, and I was um, like the youngest and the least experienced person on the team, and I felt really lucky to work with uh, all those guys at the time. Yeah, yeah. The production role on both of those, I suppose it is would be comparable to say a project manager, but there's probably a bit more to it than that, is there? Uh, a little bit. Um, so. I was the assistant producer, so we had actually <laughs> we had Ben was uh the main producer and the creative director and I was the assistant producer so Mm -hmm. I was at the time supporting him with all the documentation so spreadsheet after spreadsheet of (laughs) where we should be like what percentage have we reached for tasks to be done and then we also would have status report meetings where I would take the minutes for so I would be kind of tracking what people were doing at this time um, Mm -hmm. where they wanted to be the next day or within the next week because everyone was kind of working on the projects uh, part-time as well and uh, yeah like it was a lot to do and then what happened was Ben uh, had to had to leave us for going to things like Gamescom. I think he might have went to PAX. He went on holiday and got engaged. It was <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, the most terrifying thing I've ever experienced because <laughs> I was the only producer on the project after that. So it became a lot of making decisions, uh, testing builds, and kind of like chasing up developers and. Um, what they were doing and um, where they think they should be and because we didn't really have Ben at the time um, some like it was trying to like figure out how to maintain like creative decisions as well yeah. uh, just so that we could stay in scope so there are things like 
there like one of the big ones was in Thorn, the head that's on the wall in Thorn. There's like this mm-hmm. big imposing head in the wall and it's meant to like be watching you, tracking what you do. The, in the original design, it moved, it followed you around the room. It kind of like moved on the roller, like it was still attached to the wall, but it kind of face you and follow you. Yeah. And it, it was kind of, it was a bit difficult. It wasn't difficult to do. It was just that it was going to take too long to get feeling right and looking polished. And uh, there was a potential for a lot of bugs there. Yeah. So one of the production decisions we made was let's change how the head works so that we can mitigate the um, amount of time it's going to take to polish it and reduce the amount of bugs that are going to come from it. So I guess like that's a lot of trying to find other ways to achieve basically the same goal uh, <laughs> if it means that you're saving time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to ask, you know, have you ever worked on anything and something catastrophic happened? But obviously your main producer getting engaged isn't exactly catastrophic. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, Van, Van leaving that time did feel a bit catastrophic in my head. <laughs> but, I, but I got through it. <laughs> yeah. Does the ultimate responsibility of the quality um, of a game fall to the producer? I think that it's um, what a producer does is create accountability within the team. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it will be us kind of talking with who who's going to be in charge of this aspect, um, who's going to set the benchmark, and I will track who's accountable, basically, and kind of say, oh, well, this hasn't really this isn't really at where the benchmark we set is it's not the same quality as what you know we kind of outlined for ourselves at the beginning mm-hmm. and people can then go back and work so in a way yes um but it's a shared responsibility and i will kind of just point out to people when they haven't matched the goals that they had set out for themselves really mm-hmm. Within the industry, there's an awful lot of talk of crunch. Um, obviously, it's something that has been in the industry for a long time, but I think an awful lot of people are becoming a lot more aware of it. Um, even players of games, it's being covered a lot more by the media and things as well. Uh, obviously, it's a bad thing for the workers and what have you, but it's sometimes almost expected on a project, um, mm-hmm. depending on the companies and things like that and their sort of their work ethic. Can crunch be negated and does it come down to just bad project management? Yeah, um, crunch is absolutely, definitely a failure of production. Mm-hmm. So if whenever you are planning a project, you are estimating how much time things are going to take and it's up to you to keep on top of those estimates. If a programmer is telling you that a system is going to take so long and then that multiplies by three during development, yeah. like it's up to the producer to kind of bring everyone in and go, why did it multiply by three? Was it anything to do with um, things in your way? Is it that the people you have in the project aren't experienced enough? Is it that uh, the system kept changing, um, even though like maybe the design had already been set and it kept changing unexpectedly? And trying to find why that that stuff happens. And as a producer, you should be staying on top of that as, as you go um, and saying like, okay, um, so if this took three times double the time we expected or whatever what do you how do you now feel about the rest of the tasks that are on the task list Mm -hmm. and you should be reviewing again and deciding if the project's possible are you going to have to bring on more staff are you going to have to cut features and I think that it's it's a little bit crazy that some bigger studios have teams full of producers that still kind of fail in that regard Mm -hmm. 
and it, I, I think that it's not it's not always producers fault I think producers are sometimes employed to be the yes man to the stakeholders <laughs> and stakeholders maybe sometimes don't realize the pressure they're putting a team under um, no. but I think it's a responsibility of a producer to be outright about what what the state of a project is and not kind of make up uh, numbers or whatever about how the project's going, mm. <laughs> you know. <laughs> With a lot of it, it seems to be because there's such a long tail in marketing for a game and usually sort of release dates are known, uh, you know, nearly a year in advance almost. You know, obviously things that come out on a yearly basis like the FIFA games and what have you, but even big name games like Red Dead Redemption 2 and even now Cyberpunk 2077, we know well in advance of when their expected release dates are going to be. I take it that's part of the problem as well. Yeah, I think I did, like, I'm on Twitter a lot and I read a really good Twitter thread about, I think it was Nintendo that were becoming kind of the masters of let's, like, let's try not to announce games unless we know they're coming out within the next Mm -hmm. six months. And uh, you'll find that a lot of publishers like that have a release schedule and they will try and decide what kind of games fit their release schedule and that release schedule will probably even work around what they know from other publishers as well so if someone is releasing a first person shooter in march and someone else was originally going to release a first person shooter in march they'll be like oh that might be too (laughs) difficult to market at that time let's move it back to august or whatever Mm. and sometimes like i think a lot of studios announce when the game's already finished so that they're confident that they've got the marketing behind them. Some announce whenever the game's very much still in development. So actually back to Nintendo again with Metroid 4, they kind of had announced it with just a title screen, but they had said the game existed and people did expect it to come out within the year. But then they found that that wasn't going to be possible and they had to announce that it was going to be delayed and kind of start started from the ground up again. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Looking at release dates then uh, for smaller companies and smaller developers and things, has it got to the stage in the industry now where it's almost so crowded out um, throughout the year with the sort of the big AAA titles that for a small indie developer trying to even schedule when their game is going to come out just seems a little bit daunting, if not impossible? Yeah, I'm sure it seems really scary to some indies. I'm not really a marketing person, so um, I don't know <laughs> how, how, how marketing departments feel about establish- like thinking about release dates. I actually think 2019 is probably a pretty good year to release an indie game because mm. it's not like we just had E3 and pretty much everything was coming out in 2020 <laughs> other than yeah. like... I don't know, other than Pokemon and Witcher on the Switch or whatever. <laughs> uh, so maybe the end of 2019 is a good um, good time to release a game if people, you know, if people want to take my advice. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and March 2020 is definitely not the time you want to release your game. <laughs> yeah, um, but no, like, think thing about indies is that people in AAA are going to release games that are for audiences that do feel like they can commit 60 hours um, of their life to um, a game. And uh, that's not quite as possible anymore, I don't think. Mm. And I think that there's a very open market to things like... Things like Hellblade just came out, um, which is quite a short game. And uh, it kind of... Like, people could sit down and play that and actually complete it because, like, around their work schedules, around their family schedules, Mm -hmm. it really took off because it felt like it wasn't a complete 
it wasn't going to be a total time commitment to get anything out of it. Um, whereas people were saying like, oh, I play it. Red Dead Redemption is really good after you get through the first eight hours or something. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> so um, I guess like for indies, indies will have that advantage uh, because they are releasing smaller games, I think. Yeah. You'd mentioned there that you've taken part in the Transfuser program um, as both a project submitter, um, but you've also worked there as a judge as well, haven't you? Mm-hmm. I've been judging the competition for, um, well, since the year after I um, started it and they wanted it from the perspective of someone that's been in the same position as them um, mm-hmm. and someone that has also started a company and kind of made all the mistakes that these graduates are making because um, I review the competition as a judge, but there's not really anything that stops them contacting me and asking for advice as well. Oh, so okay. it very much becomes like kind of just like very distant mentorship I don't really know many of the people that have contacted me some of the people I've gotten to know well after they've taken part in the competition Mm -hmm. but yeah like people can um ask for advice I did write up a big blog for the most recent one that was all about what transfuser is and kind of where your head should be at if you want to take part in it okay yeah because uh because me me giving advice um is fine it doesn't it doesn't give anyone a head up in the competition because it's all the competition's all about attitude anyway, mm-hmm. and it's like the pe- the people are that are more proactive to go and find that advice, go ask the uh, industry for um, help or kind of guidance um, are the people that tend to get ahead, and that's how literally every indie works in the industry. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, with your role as a lecturer then um, in both games design and games art. What are the sort of the lessons that you hope to instill in the students um, before they finish their courses? Um, my modules are very much about independent learning. Um, so mm. the students will have their modules where they get taught by someone um, working in uh, engine and someone else that's working on 3D modeling programs. And I'm kind of there from a project management perspective, um, encouraging them to kind of learn what scope is, um, learn how to make projects that are kind of manageable for them as individuals, learn how to work efficiently as well and dynamically. Um, There's like a lot of students that will say um, come across a problem and they'll just keep trying to hammer at the problem instead of like taking a step back and going oh maybe I I don't need to do this or just acknowledging their technical skills not there yet and they would learn a lot more efficiently if they took a different route and maybe and they'd probably learn more taking like a different route at this period of time um, Mm -hmm. that would then mean they could overcome that challenge later but it's very much up to the students to like it's my advice is to is definitely they definitely take or leave it, <laughs> um, and that's like completely up to them. And it's not like I won't be there to tell them that they're doing something wrong. I'll just be there to be like, hmm, okay, if you think so. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> I'd seen you'd posted on your Twitter feed just about, you know, you'd been saying about your students um, going off for the summer and what have you, and just sort of asking for advice. One of the things that somebody came back with was make games. Yeah. <laughs> do you know the amount of students that don't, don't do they just, they just don't do work outside of their actual university work, mm-hmm. which is like, 
I, you have to become self-driven to make that portfolio and prove to companies that um, you you want to work there, you want to work in games. Like, If you come home and you have... Like our students finish their last assignment at the end of April and they don't come back in again until the middle of September. Mm-hmm. So if you sit there for four and a half months and literally don't do anything to expand on your skills I don't like a studio is not going to think you want to work in the games industry um so uh, I guess and I know that some of my students follow me and um quite uh like to be fair the students that follow me are the ones that are interested in the games industry and that's probably why they're following me on Twitter (laughs) (laughs) so I don't know how to reach the the students that um that aren't reaching out to the industry and trying to learn from it but like it was it's important that for those students that are trying and do want that kind of leg up for whenever they're graduating to kind of like see see that and see the industry responding to I guess me setting an example to them in a way uh me being proactive and reaching out to the industry to ask for advice um and then seeing the industry respond to that quite positively um there was so many different kinds of advice coming through there was uh mod games learn how to scope your games work outside your comfort zone and it was it was it's a cool thread i did i did share it on um the university's like job job page after that so hopefully hopefully some people read it (laughs) (laughs) is a platform like hio uh useful for students in that it's almost they can post like a, a portfolio of their games and things or what they're working on yeah definitely um like uh, this is actually something I talked to UK Games Talent about recently because people that finish Transfuser are way too scared to put their games on itch.io when actually if they just put it up there show someone that they achieved something they took part in Transfuser there was an actual product at the end of it mm-hmm. that says so much more than so many other people their age that are leaving university and applying for work and itch.io is also a great tool for your game to just be there accessible via one link whenever people are applying for work. Yeah. I recently had to interview people for a team and we were looking at their skill sets and the amount of people that kind of had, that it took so long to get to their portfolio. Um, we couldn't see the skills that we were looking for immediately in their portfolio, which is mm. when you're going through applications, it's it's a bit frustrating and you wonder if they put any effort into personalizing applying for that job at all yeah so i think like having your portfolio ready and sat there and as easy to use as possible and i think in terms of checking if it's easy to use like it's literally about sending the link to your friend and just saying like go go through this and tell me what you think (laughs) so (laughs) yeah yeah but in that respect itch seems like almost the perfect platform for you know, people who are just experimenting or wanting to throw up little quick experiences that they know aren't necessarily going to be marketable or even necessarily profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, there seems to be a whole culture around it with a lot of developers making very short, very quick experiences, but making a lot of them and covering a vast range of different, you know, uh, different stories and things within those. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Um because uh, I think it's quite it's quite inspiring to go through itch.io and seeing what like bedroom developers are making really like mm-hmm. we so, some of them you don't know who they are it might be someone that's 14 like just after school making games yeah it could be someone that is like 50 or 60 um just kind of exploring games for the first time because 
because it's fun to it's fun yeah. to make games and it's fun to see people play your games and leave comments and i think that it's unfortunate that a lot of people that are going into education games kind of get terrified of um what people are going to think of their games and what people are going to think of their work whenever there's a whole community out there proud of the little things they make yeah. and aren't too, aren't afraid of the fact that it's not going to make money they're not afraid of someone making one snarky comment because they're <laughs> they're proud of what they did so yeah, I think Itch.io is a great platform for that. It's something that we actually use for um, showing our students like interactive fiction and stuff mm-hmm. that's available because we have some interactive fiction assignments because interactive fiction kind of teaches people about making, uh, giving, um, kind of creating an experience for players without necessarily needing to know a game engine uh, and giving them interesting choices to make and an interesting world to explore. You know, even... Um, as- in that respect, uh, even something as simple as Twine yep. is very easy to get your head around and start something very simple in, but is complicated enough that you can actually produce quite an impressive game within the sort of framework that it allows. Yeah, exactly. It's something. Twine is the tool that we use to show them how to do this, and students do put really interesting game mechanics into Twine. Um, some people make like inventory, some people have like a timed games that you have so long to kind of get through the choices and find all the information you need mm-hmm. and it's 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 cool because because people literally do that in games right now like her story is basically kind of like a twine that you like type in things and try and get the answer and you can you can show that you have the ability to cre- create that sort of experience without having game engine knowledge mm-hmm. yeah uh, the range of games that i sort of eventually just end up wishlisting on itch is uh, bewildering um, mm-hmm. especially just all the free ones you could literally spend an entire year not going anywhere near touching you know any triple a games or whatever and just play free itch games and you would probably have a much more rounded um, and certainly varied experience um, by playing those as opposed to necessarily just playing the big games of the year yeah, you notice students that um only play the big games. Like you can tell that um they're making like they're making something that's like Resident Evil, um, or they're making something that's a bit like Call of Duty or mm. Overwatch or anything like that. And the themes come up again and again, and you can tell what students are more into their indie games because they're trying like a few different things. And I think that going indie. Like even if you want to work AAA, pulling from pulling from indie games for inspiration as a designer is ridiculously important because you they're they're always making something new and they they come from somewhere else. They don't come from like a a bag of money. They come from someone's mind like that's that really wanted to kind of explore something creative and try something out. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, there the influences are definitely come from outside of games um, even further than just ordinary other media like books and uh, music and film and TV and what have you as well a lot of them just seem to come from sort of left field but those are always the most interesting games to play mm-hmm. yeah they definitely are I um, I don't play a lot of AAA anymore um, like uh, I, I, I play Nintendo stuff because I find that Nintendo do some interesting things with games mm. um, and it's always kind of new uh, but mostly it's it's smaller games though most recently I was playing Night in the Woods I was trying out Golf Story um, I played a lot of Two Point Hospital this year which might be a little bit more 
triple I, I don't I don't really know the yeah. size of their studio but the scale of the game made it, made it kind of go beyond just indie but yeah like there's games I think I would like to pick up from triple A but it's just like I never feel like I'm getting anything new from it I did try Spider-Man EGX this year because everyone was going on about it uh-huh. and uh, I like did this fighting scene it felt just like Batman and I was like <laughs> Oh, it's it's not new sort of thing. Uh, I, d- yeah. I didn't feel like I was actually missing out uh, after tr- after that short go. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. <laughs> You've recently started um, Girls Make Games in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a little bit more about that initiative. Um, yeah, so Girls Make Games basically runs workshops for girls aged 8 to 15 and it's actually something that's based in America mm-hmm. and they run summer camps um, so kids will go and kind of go to these summer camps for maybe two months at a time and by the end of it they'll make a game um, and some of those games even get kickstarted after Girls Make Games. It's really cool. There was some conversations, there's quite a lot of conversations that happen all the time about how women get treated in games, how women aren't interested in coming into games or people don't feel like women don't feel like there's a space here for them or Mm. that companies maybe don't stand up for them as much as they should um that they don't get the flexi time they should and getting more women into games to kind of shout this and explain to people that the the formula that was that you're using before isn't going to work anymore a lot of the aim of Girls Make Games is to show girls that it is possible for them to do this thing and that they can create something for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really wanted to find an initiative and volunteer with it uh, maybe last last summer. Um, mm-hmm. And I couldn't find anything anywhere. And uh, I saw that some people were making art for Girls Make Games at the time. So uh, Girls Make Games code games in america and then they will ask the industry to put the art on top of the games oh, okay that's very cute but i decided to email around so i asked um i asked i emailed girls Make games and i didn't really get a response straight away so i emailed woman in games that's based in the uk mm-hmm. and asked did they know about any initiatives that were happening and they didn't really know about much but then girls Make games got back to me um, and I actually, uh, <laughs> I actually got the woman in games were like, oh, but uh, these people are interested in doing this kind of thing too. And just for how small this industry is, uh, I was put in contact with a woman who was contracting me from the Netherlands. <laughs> and we were like, oh, hello. <laughs> yeah, we know each other. <laughs> so yeah, um, and. The, it's, she kind of helped me out a little bit and I got in contact with Girls Make Games eventually and they were like oh sorry we don't have anything you can volunteer with in the UK but if you mm. want you can start something in the UK <laughs> <laughs> and yeah since then I, I ran I ran, I then organised a Girls Make Games workshop in Manchester at the university I teach at which is really cool uh, there was a lot of outreach involved uh, we got a lot of cool things in goodie bags there was all kinds of people contacting us we had like uh, indie developers, AAA developers, uh, esport women's esports teams were okay. giving us stuff for goodie bags. Um, it was really cool. And uh, then the outreach manager in Media Molecule got in contact with me and asked um, what it was I was doing and wanted more information. So we gave her all the information about Girls Make Games and Media Molecule were, were able to run their own Girls Make Games workshop. 
Um, and the girls, uh, I actually don't didn't really know any woman in Manchester at the time uh, because the girls make games. I've, I I got to meet them basically. Like it yeah. kind of they all like came and said hello. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, but at the time, I knew girls from Newcastle, and they actually came down and helped volunteer with me. And then they went and ran their own in Newcastle um, around the same time Media Molecule were running theirs. Mm. And now we're getting all kinds of interest. So I've just ran another two this summer. There's a third one coming up, uh, another one coming up in Manchester. So we've had Warrington, Leeds, Manchester. Uh, I really do want to go run one in Northern Ireland. I was talking, <laughs> I was talking to my own primary school about doing it, um, mm-hmm. but they're quite busy at the time. So we'll see if they come back to me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, it's cool. Jagex are talking to me because they want to run one in Cambridge at the minute, and then I'm going to be running one in Playground Games in August. Mm-hmm. So it's amazing where it's come from the amount of people i've got to meet i've started a discord just for the volunteers because um some students volunteer with me but also industry professionals volunteer with me and it's a really good connection opportunity for everyone involved yeah like it kind of works it works for these young girls that find out that local developers are close to them there's role models right down the road and then for the volunteers they get to meet some people that are local that maybe they haven't met before working in local companies and students get to kind of meet these people as well and yeah i think it's 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 something that's got a lot of potential Mm. which is cool yeah it's definitely seems like a very important initiative but it's also i suppose it acts as a way of getting new faces into the industry as well and what have you yeah new faces important and also just in certain areas um some people really do struggle to um meet people like if you go to big events like edx gdc develop you meet all the women they're all at those events Mm. like for example i was one of two girls in my university course and then this girl was like the only other person in games i really knew until yeah. I was like taking part in Transfuser and got to meet some more women. So like spending three years in a group full of like lads, 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 <laughs> lads uh, <laughs> um, was uh, like y- you're you're wondering like where on earth are uh, all these women. And yeah, it's, like it's it's good that uh, women in games and girls make games exist to kind of have a center point that people can go to to tell people that they want to meet other women. So yeah. Right, I want to finish on three quick questions. Okay. So, f- first one, do you have an unfinished project that you still want to finish? Yeah, I've been, um, I really love design and I've been designing my own little, like, tycoon game at the minute as a personal project. It's quite cute. I enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> What's the one thing you wish all game makers knew? Oh, what do I wish all game makers knew? I wish that all indie developers knew that they absolutely need a producer if they want to save money. <laughs> if they want to save money, they need a producer. <laughs> and finally, who or what inspires you? Mm, oh, what inspires me or who inspires me? Um, it's definitely like other women in the industry. I got nominated for GI 100 this year and I didn't get into the 100, but... I got to kind of join this network of like 400 women that were nominated (laughs) and like hearing how much all these women like kick ass every day (laughs) um, is it's definitely inspiring and um, yeah. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) If people want to get in contact with you what's the best way? Uh, It would be Twitter at Kiva so it's (laughs) K-E-E-V-A-H-H. And 
What are you working on at the minute, um, other than all <laughs> the other bits and pieces? I am producing something cool at the minute, and I'm not really sure I'm allowed to talk about it. Oh, they ha- the, the, I, so no, no spoilers, but yeah, if, if you're working yeah. on something, then that's fair enough. <laughs> yeah, it's it's cool. People will know by the end of the year what I'm working on. So Ooh. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's been absolutely lovely. Thank you very much for coming on and uh, <laughs> chatting with me. Um, it's been great. I've been your host, Stuart Neil. Uh, if you want to get hold of me, um, you can go contact the Twitter account, uh, which is how to the number two uh, make a game. I'm at Saintly Stuart on Twitter as well, and you can get in contact by email on how to make a game cast at gmail.com. So, yeah, no, thank you very much, Kiva. Um, right, it's been welcome. lovely. Yes, okay. thank you. <laughs> and uh, goodbye. Bye. <laughs>